0: The Green Party had its AGM on the weekend and released its election manifesto, though that might not have been what you're thinking of.
1: Well, it it didn't really seem to
0: dominate the headlines, did it? Not exactly, and I think that's partly because poor Greens, at the same time they were doing that, ACT was releasing a policy that stole the limelight, and that was its promise to put 17-year-olds through the adult justice system. That was a lot more prominent, and that proposal got top billing on the home pages of our major news sites. It shunted the Greens' manifesto down the run sheet of News Hub at 6 on Sunday. And It didn't quite do the same on One News at 6. Instead, that show ran the two stories as a kind of Political mashup. So here's how the intro to that story went.
1: ACT is selling itself as the party of law and order with a controversial policy to have 17-year-olds charged as adults. Meanwhile, the Green Party's released its full manifesto.
0: Now, now I don't have any inside information, but I think the ACT would probably be feeling pretty good about getting a single policy release, uh, more coverage, or ahead of the coverage. of a a party's full manifesto, as it was said there.
1: So do you think this was an intentional effort to knock the Greens off the front page on their big day?
0: I don't know. It would be pretty clever if that was the case because I think it's a bit of an exploit of uh, a media structural issue here. Uh, Whatever the intention, that's what it did pretty successfully. And don't get me wrong, this kind of stuff happens a lot. I don't think there's any conspiracy at play here. But I thought it was a pretty good case study in some of those structural biases that shape our media coverage. Because if you're deciding... Just from a bird's eye view, what is the most important story? You know, what's the what's the most important story for the country? The Greens releasing their full election manifesto probably is going to eclipse ACT releasing a single controversial justice policy. That's not to say that ACT's policy isn't worth covering, of course, uh, but in the Greens you have a party that's in government and some of this suite of policies could be adopted by the next government depending on the election results. So, you know, obviously... That's not the calculus of our news editors. That's not what they're using when they're deciding what to cover and to what extent. And maybe green supporters will say those news judgments reflect an editorial bias to the right or towards act in general. But I think the actual bias at play is more fundamental to the industry than any political bias from editors or journalists. No, what works is
1: clicks, isn't it, really? Uh, What will rate is going to factor in that editorial decision-making rather than just, uh, I guess, what's important.
0: Yeah, exactly. What's exciting, and this is a more exciting story, a more debatable story, and, I mean, these are commercial media companies, Mm. and their viability, their ability to survive, rests on uh, their commercial performance. Though... I mean, some are pursuing these premium strategies which augment their priorities a bit, but in most cases, their economic incentives are still heavily weighted towards growing that audience, uh, engaging their audience over necessarily producing what is the most, quote marks, worthy content. And so you can sell engagement, audience numbers to advertisers, they look good on your annual report, and in that environment, a large, very... uh, I guess, important manifesto of policies uh, is likely to not be as enticing for editors as a simple policy that gets people on both sides of the political aisle Riled up, and that was, I think, evident in how the story was treated on news Ta- news Ta- news, Ta- news, Ta- news talk ZB. There's too many newses in front of our news organisation names. Uh, this, this is how the station's Sunday host Raman Travers, uh, gave David Seymour a send off after their 17 minute interview. I've been waiting for this for a few months, David, and I'm I'm very pleased that somebody's taking it seriously and putting stuff on paper with a pen. So,
1: David Seymour, ACT Party leader, thank you so much for your time this afternoon.
0: Thanks, Rayman. Thanks, everyone listening.
1: Yeah, yeah, good on you. Thank you. Out there in the wind. I mean, how many politicians are out there on a day like today actually being
0: politicians? They're probably sitting at home with a Sauvignon cardboard um, enjoying reruns of the rugby. Good old David Seymour there. Yeah, that's Roman Travers sending off David Seymour after their interview about sending teenagers through the adult justice system, and that contrasted pretty starkly with his first question to Green co-leader Marama Davidson. So,
1: you've released your 2023 23 election manifesto quite simply. Is it simply easy to make it simple? What's the point in releasing a huge manifesto?
0: Little bit of word salad there. Look, I, might, I don't want to put my own phrasing up for too much of a close analysis, but it wasn't the best le- best phrase question ever. Uh, but I, th- I thought that question was pretty instructive. Why didn't you make it simple?
1: So, in, a, in short, why didn't you put out something?
0: Yeah, that's something a little simple, bit yeah. that, that we can just digest. And I mean, right, this is news talk. There might possibly be a little bit of political favorit- favoritism at play in that interview with good old David Seymour. But uh and you can see that, I think, the next day. Case in point, uh, this is David Seymour talking to Jamie Mackay on the same station on The Country.
1: You're going to lock up 17-year-olds. Is this a universal lock-up for all 17-year-olds? Because they can be rather pesky adolescents at that age. Do we lock them all up for a year, then let them out when they're 18? Well, I, I was at boarding school when I was 17, so I pretty much was locked up until further notice. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I don't think we should lock up all 17-year-olds and then release them if they could. good
0: ha ha, ha ha ha, yucking it up a little bit. But having said that, it's not all just sympathy or uh, with that side of the political spectrum. I mean, talk radio hosts are attuned to what their audience wants and a single clear provocative point is usually going to be easier to digest and probably prompt a few more calls than a technical set of policies, even if they're more substantive. And there's also the fact that newsrooms are stretched. Some stories are just easier to cover than others. Yeah, and this is the other fundamental thing with the media. It's a, it's a bias of sorts, but it's not a, 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 a bias in their views. Uh, I mean, covering something like the Green Manifesto is a more time-intensive task than repurposing a press release from ACT possibly with a little bit of additional comment from David Seymour. And credit Mm. to organisations like The Herald and stuff. They did do that work. I mean, Glenn McConnell and stuff, Michael Nielsen of The Herald, they put together some pretty comprehensive coverage. McConnell even found a clickable way to frame things. His story was headlined, Five Policies You Might Not Have Expected from the Greens Manifesto, and it was popular on stuff on Monday. But that sort of stuff takes resources. I mean, you're sending people along to the venue, you're digesting a whole bunch of information, and as a result, those stories are up. Later in the day, they took a bit more work. Mm. And there's just the reality of staffing in newsrooms as well. On weekends, particularly in digital teams, Mm. staffing is pretty threadbare. Sometimes you just got to chuck up what you can chuck up. And as RNZ found out recently with its Russiagate saga, those staffing constraints can sometimes Mm. mean news that doesn't meet your usual standards can sneak through a bit easily And sometimes tuning out a press release from a political party helps fill the space. And again, that resourcing often comes down to the fact these are commercial organisations. Their funding for staff only stretches as far as their profit margins allow, and those profit margins are pretty tight.
1: So I guess you're saying that there can be a conflict between news organisations'
0: commercial imperatives and, I guess, their their news values. Yeah, I think that's the central issue here. I mean, and it's, it's a long-standing one. We rightly hold up the media as a core part of our democracy. They're meant to hold the government to account, to dig deep into the policy issues of the day, to broaden our understanding of them. But sometimes fulfilling that function is just not going to be as popular with the organi- with the audience or as engaging as putting up maybe a less enlightening, enlightening but more exciting story. And In this case, I think the Greens were forced down the bulletins and the news list by some engagement-friendly content, and maybe they'll do it to another party the next time. And this Mm -hmm. isn't a new problem, and perhaps it's not even a dire one, because good journalism, I'm very keen to say, it still gets produced every day. Mm -hmm. But it's still a dilemma that a core part of our political system is essentially a loss leader Mm. for ad-driven media in a lot of cases. We're farming out some of our democratic functions to companies which are meant to complete that vital work as an act of, if not charity, then at least not according to the harshest commercial calculus. Mm. But of course public media is meant to be part of that
1: answer as well, right?
0: Yeah, and that's why we had stuff like the the much maligned public interest journalism People said, oh, well, you're going to be beholden to the government. Actually, what it was doing was mainly filling those gaps in the commercial media where stuff that wasn't viable, according to that harsh commercial calculus, Mm -hmm. was being funded so that it would still take place, which is good for our democracy. I mean, that's why you have... Initiatives like Open Justice, where you send people to courts and fielding or something, which might not get covered, or the Local Democracy Reporting Scheme, where you send people to councils that obviously don't necessarily, that kind of role is not really that viable for a news organization. And RNZ, we're meant to be another media outlet that can c- cover what we want without adhering to commercial imperatives, and to a certain extent that's true. You mm. see it in RNZ's arts coverage, mm. for instance, it produces a a breadth and a depth of arts coverage that has kind of dropped out of commercial media because of funding constraints. Mm. Uh, but even RNZ, it still has its visitor targets, its website click targets, that kind of stuff. Even Its editorial decisions, even just its competitiveness, it's, mm. uh, they're still made according to the same calculus in mm. some ways as commercial media, and the company's argument for that is that, well, we need to give the government bang for its buck. If it's spending this much money, we want to reach as big an audience as possible, uh, but it, it it does have to balance that with another task, and that is filling those gaps and really catering to audiences that may not adequately be served by commercial media alone.
1: Mm. There's another notable thing about that particular Sunday, the bloody Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> this uh, It's another set of policies announced on a Sunday. This seems to be the day. It's become a bit of a
0: trend in this election, right? Yeah. Sunday's the
1: day to get it out there.
0: It's a craze. It's an election craze. We're totally just launching all our policies on Sunday. It's become a popular day for, mm. for doing it, and TVNZ's Q&A in particular has become a bit of a launching pad for political parties, particularly national. Now, Q&A had the... Well, it had a couple of pages of the Green Manifesto last weekend. Uh, National has used it more frequently. It's launched a bunch of policies on the show, including its full suite of housing policies, mm. including its back down from the Medium Density Housing Accord, its proposal to overturn a ban on genetic engineering, its proposal to fast-track consenting on renewable energy, its three waters alternative. So these are these kind of things it's doing. Is it the likes of
1: Q&A that are driving that, you know, the, the longer form?
0: Yeah, I don't know whether this is a particular strategy from Q and A. I think there's definitely a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours yeah. element to this because the political parties can go on this show and speak to what's really a niche but highly obsessed political audience where they're gonna comment about it incessantly. The the politicians are going to get a bunch of time to really explain their policy in a way that they might not have done in any other situation mm. and it's such a niche audience that there's not other other news organizations aren't going oh no it's been on QA we can't cover it now it's it's and Sunday such a A a light day when it comes to news is often a dearth of news that you'll find that a a policy will launch on Q&A in the morning and will still lead the 6 p.m. bulletins later that night. So there's not really a lot of downsides. It's quite a good strategic move, I think, and uh, one I think we will see other parties employ as October 14 gets closer. Now, we just talked about
1: stories that only contain a single point of view in politics. Uh, You also saw a
0: transport story that had the same issue this week. That's right, so Stuff printed a story cleverly headlined the not-fast and the very-furious 30km per hour hour limit plans for NZ Towns on Monday. Now, its first sentence is, I quote, Plans to reduce speed limits to 30km per hour in suburban streets are absolute insanity, critics say. And generally in that kind of story, with that kind of lead, you might hear what the non-critics say as well, but that wasn't really the case in in this one. Why? Was there no room? There was definitely room. It's the internet, there's a lot of pixels on there, I understand it. <laughs> uh, it was really a single perspective story, and these single perspective stories are usually just write-offs from press releases. You see it a bit... Uh, maybe from political parties or campaigners or lobby groups and they're put up to fill a news hole or to move a story along that's been Mm. printed earlier in the day. Again, Act is, again, pretty pretty good at uh, taking advantage of that, uh, and getting out quick fire releases on issues of the day and just getting up a story that might be just from their perspective. And I'll note the Media Council has said that that kind of coverage isn't necessarily a deal breaker, that you don't have to include every perspective in every story and that you can create balance across the broad breadth of your coverage. Mm. But this story about pedestrian, <laughs> well, not about, about speed limits, sorry, It went to the trouble of quoting multiple people. There's Tauranga's local MP, Sam Uffindale, a car reviewer, a furious mayor, a bike shop owner who wants cars to keep going the same speed, and a local business person who's the most confusing, who said that Tauranga's drivers are the worst in the country and should be allowed to go faster for some reason. I I, I, (laughs) I didn't, those two, those two points didn't quite marry up. They, they're awful, they don't indicate, they swerve all over the road, and I want them to be able to go as fast as they're going now. Get out I don't, of here. <laughs> I thought this is a good argument for slowing these guys down, they sound horrible. Anyway, the only lines actually explaining the rationale for lowering speed limits are the last two of the story, where Transport Minister David Parker. Is quoted as saying Waka Kotahi's road to zero strategy is now projected to lead to a 30 to 35% reduction in road deaths and serious injuries by 2030. And I found this a little bit frustrating as someone who pays pays a bit of attention to transport issues. What would you have liked? Well, this is such an interesting topic because there's a heap of research on the impact of lower speed limits and some of it's counterintuitive. I mean, the main finding is that A collision between a car and a pedestrian at 50 kilometres per hour is fatal in 80% of cases. Now, that drops to 10% at 30 kilometres per hour, so it's almost exponential. Meanwhile, we've done studies tracking journey times at different speeds. So Waka Kotahi's done one on a four-kilometre journey on local roads, and at a speed limit of 50 kilometres an hour, uh, there was about an 11 to 42 second difference from uh, the same journey at a speed limit of 40 kilometres per hour. So it's mm. not as major as you would think. And If you think about it for a bit, that's because, well, a lot of the time on local roads, you're just going to the next traffic light anyway. You're mm. just getting there faster. Mm. And basically, this is just one of those counterintuitive policy areas where often the evidence doesn't jibe with what people's default assumptions are going to be. So for instance you know widening a road you might think that'll ease traffic it actually doesn't in fact it induces demand for more driving and it fails as a solution to congestion conversely you'd think that reducing road space is always going to increase congestion it's not the case again there's this mm. phenomenon called traffic evaporation this is all uh, kind of counterintuitive but interesting stuff and mm. i'd love it to be included i mean or even just the rationale mm. for lowering speed limits to be included in a a story like this, because, I mean, if you want to cover this topic, you're wanting to leave your audience better informed than when they started reading. And instead of that, we got a lot of heat, or in the headlines words, fury, but not so much light. Mm.
1: Now, before we move on, you had some harsh words for another piece of media coverage, this time from, wait for it, RNZ
0: Media Watch. indeed. This is this is this is tough stuff uh, to admit. This is a media, mere culpa by Media Watch, and on Sunday's show you might have heard this intro from Colin Peacock. The New Zealand Listener magazine is, by any measure, a stayer. Now that was an introduction to an interview I did with uh, Sideswipe author Anna Samways. Mm-hmm. A pretty pretty good interview. You can seek it out if you want, but. Uh, was that intro good enough to play twice in a row? Apparently, Media Watch thought so because that's what it did on Sunday morning. The New Zealand Listener magazine is, by any measure, a stayer. <laughs> was that? We did it again.
1: <laughs> What's happening? Uh, was this really an editorial decision,
0: or was it a technical hitch? Oh, I, I, you wouldn't believe this, mate, but I. Must have been some, a good interview, uh, Hayden. You were oh, yeah, there. I mean, I gosh. guess it, Colin must have loved it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I do have some inside information on this story. I interviewed the person who edited the Media Watch show. That was Colin Peacock. He sent a statement to me. Uh, I can read it. Reports that this was a digital anomaly or even a deliberate move to check if listeners were paying attention (laughs) or that the intro was so good people should hear it twice. They're all incorrect. It was a case of human error. One human in particular uh, himself. That's Colin writing in third person there. Uh, In spite of checking the recording, he didn't spot the duplication. Uh, which was fixed before the re- replay of the show at 10pm, he apologises and says it won't happen again. Mm. And if it does, he hopes it's someone else's fault. <laughs> I guess that would be me. <laughs> yes. uh, he's, be he, I've, I've got information on Colin. He's now reportedly at home with the, the windows closed, the curtains drawn. He plans to re-emerge carrying a duffel bag full of bricks with the word shame stenciled on them and day glow letters uh, in time to make a repetition-free episode this Sunday. And
1: the news crews and the lights from the you know television uh, outside broadcast units outside Yeah, a, I, I
0: understand that it's pretty stressful in there yeah. at the moment. There's quite a lot uh, of con- condemnation from the media, a lot of pressure going on. Gosh mighty. we had the what? The pro-Russia edit scandal
1: on RNZ and now this? Yeah, it's been oh. a
0: dreadful few months for RNZ, but we're, re- we're apologising to our listeners. We're turning a page. We're hoping it won't happen again. Now, one of the big news stories
1: of the weekend, sports stories, was nothing to do with the results, even though they were pretty darn good, but uh, the response to All Blacks captain Sam Kane when he foot tripped or kicked a pitch invader on the weekend in Argentina. Yeah. Now, you'd think, what did you think of the. Well, I thought it was a reflex action. I think I saw him turn around and he just stuck his foot out. He saw this thing running. This oh, I, th- running. that was
0: a kick. <laughs> yeah, you thought that was a reflex? Uh,
1: well, you know, I mean, he saw something, oh, put your foot out, you know. Oh, uh, sometimes. foot trips are like, aren't they? They kind of...
0: Oh, uh, I think that he lined this one up. I mean, I've done a, I've done an instinctive foot trip before. I'm not, I don't know. I mean... It, it was the kind of thing you you thought but he was first. standing in the huddle
1: yeah. and this guy came round the back of the huddle somewhat and you think he turned around saw him and then oh, i'm going to i'm going to
0: trip him up yeah i think so because <laughs> it was a full kick was it a kick or a trip i i'm oh, going uh, to start another yeah, one yeah well, i here. don't know we <laughs> got all right I think I think he lined them up. Sometimes you just feel like it. You know, you're just yeah. like, oh, come on. Well, I've heard players afterwards
1: talking about the frustration of that with, you know, mm. it's all very well for the the spectators to get a bit. I think most spectators actually get bloody annoyed with it as well. But some think, oh, it's a bit of fun. will be interesting to see how good the security guards are at tackling. I mean, that's what yeah. you're thinking
0: about. So, but you can imagine. Have you ever ever been a pitch invader yourself? No, not my style at all. No, I I can't do it myself. But uh, not because I'm particularly ideologically averse to it, but because I don't like the attention. Yeah, I can't. You wouldn't believe that, but you would think someone like
1: me wouldn't Mm. want attention, but that's uh, far from the truth. But um, no, it just doesn't. I don't know. It just seems seems hatefully stupid. Really, I think it's ridiculous. I mean, it'd hell? be good
0: viral advertising for you, though, if you are gone on the pitch with sort of Tux Wonder Dogs <laughs> tattooed on your back. <laughs>
1: did <laughs> you know about the tattoo, did you?
0: Yeah, I did. <laughs> I understand that the full crew got that. <laughs> um, anyway, anyway. This was, <laughs> we've, we've, we've gone off topic. We have uh, somewhat. But it's the kind of thing that we thought would be widely condemned by the sports media. And it did, it did appear to be... Uh, being condemned at first, Andrew Gordy said it wasn't a good look. He's a One News sports presenter. The RNZ reporter Ben Strang called it. Uh, he called it a genuinely thuggish act. But as it turns out, many sports reporters didn't agree with that assessment, and actually, a surprising unanimity. Mm. emerged around what was seen as Kane's righteous cause here. So sports commentator Jason Pine said on Twitter, if you don't run on the field, everything is fine. Utter entitlement to think it's okay. Sam Kane has nothing to apologize for, for me. And Scotty Stevenson, he he took things, uh, u- usually a liberal member of the sports establishment, mm. he, he was not happy with this. He took things even further, saying that Kane didn't go far enough. I reckon he should have kicked him
1: harder. Get off the field. <laughs> Pitch invaders are a massive problem in sport at the moment, and these guys are in a foreign country. They've never played on this field before. Oh, the kid got what he deserved. Stop hmm. running on the field. Stop running on the field.
0: Agreed. Sam kind of. And gonna- also, look at the way he bounced back up. Kids are like rubber. They take a lot of pressure.
1: Yeah, well, he did bounce up pretty quickly and yeah. take off, didn't he? Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, sure. Adrenaline, of course. I mean, <laughs> kids are like rubber, but I mean, still... <laughs> Well, from what I understand, anyway, kicking them is still yeah. frowned upon. Uh, I mean, having said that, he's absolutely right. Pitch invaders are a real problem in sports lately, so hopefully this will deter further incidents. Uh, another prominent sports commentator adopting that view and siding with the kicker, not the kicked, that was Murray Deeker. Uh, name you... Oh, Murray, Murray Deeker. Here he is, uh, speaking to Talk ZB's Jamie Mackay again on the country. So if you run onto the paddock, you deserve everything you get.
1: I'm with uh, Scotty Stevenson from TVNZ. He's doing a piece tonight on that, and we were just discussing it. And he said, what's the guy meant to do? He's the captain of the All Blacks. There's a bloke hovering around, running towards his team, and he stuck his foot out, and he's getting crucified for doing it. Well, I wouldn't crucify him for doing that. He should have stuck both feet out when he'd uplifted him, given him a kick in the backside and got him off the ground.
0: Another further kicking ordered there, and yep. uh, Deeker went on to criticise the media for taking aim at Kane over the incident. Now, I don't think he should have worried so much. I mean, despite some early words of condemnation in the end, I think violence really won the day here. Uh, the calls for further kickings were louder than the calls for fewer kickings. Did you think that the kicking was justified, Mark? I well, as I say, it was a reflex action. I it don't. i that, you know, we're, we're, I'm we're, not going. If, you, if it wasn't a reflex, would you back it? <laughs> well, I don't condone kicking of anybody. I mean, I, I, I just well, don't of course agree, not. Don't agree with it. Of course uh, not. You're a, shocking. I, a, I have two wolves inside me on this one. Yeah. Like, I can definitely understand the the, the desire yes, to kick,
1: yeah. but I do find that frustrating. I do. Find it's frustrating. It, yeah, but yeah. but at the and same you know, time, I think say, probably it's best not to kick. Yeah, children. Yes. Okay. Yes. Given, but you know. He could have been carrying something dangerous. (laughs) I mean, who knows? I think you're getting into a dangerous area here because this is a call
0: for, like, (laughs) preemptive... Preemptive action. Security guards where you, know, goes we, well, around you the have team. to kick everyone in case they're carrying something dangerous.
1: Well, I remember um, a few years ago it was Richie McCaw and I think it was a guy called AJ Venter of the Springboks. They took out um, a, a guy who ran onto the field. They tackled him. I think he tried to uh, mm. attack the referee, so there was a good cause Yeah, for Richie that,
0: McCaw got him. Andrew Simons from the Australian cricket team did another one. Did one. one of those, yeah. yeah. Anyway, anyway, we'll move on. So, I haven't heard Murray Deeker's voice for
1: a while. Um, That's uh, interesting. He's
0: back, is he? Yeah, but you're going to be hearing a bit more of it, provided you listen to his podcast, which is being produced by NZME. And he was speaking to Jamie Mackay there, of course, where he confirmed he'd got on board with the golf The golf and the leisurely lifestyle of retirement will be making a comeback. So, what can we expect?
1: Is he back on the year, or what's going to be happening? Is it a podcast?
0: Yeah, podcast, podcast. And there haven't been too many many details yet, except for it's happening in August. Uh, But we know one thing we won't be hearing on Murray Deeker's podcast, and that's any of that woke stuff. So, this is what Deeker said to Mackay.
1: Now, the good thing about you making a comeback, Murray, all joking aside, is that I think you'll give the wokesters a bit of a shake-up. You haven't got a PC
0: bone in your body.
1: No, and and I'm not going to put up with any of that rubbish either, because it is rubbish.
0: Wokesters, look out. Murray Deeker's coming for you on the podcast, uh, Audio Waves. It's a... It's unclear what Deeker does consider woke, but he was once embroiled in a scandal after saying the N-word on air, so hopefully he's not planning to bring that one back. I mean, presumably not kicking pitch invaders is also on the woke spectrum, Uh, so that we will definitely be having some pro-kicking content in there. I mean, uh, perhaps after we've kicked them, we can lock them away with the 17-year-olds following a fair trial in an adult court, of course. So the
1: podcast in uh, in August with Murray Dekev. Now over to
0: some international news media. Yeah, just to, before we go, there's a, a bit of a scandal brewing at the BBC, and that's because News Corp's tabloid newspaper, The Sun, broke a story over the weekend about a well-known BBC presenter allegedly paying an underage teenager thirty five thousand pounds for sexually explicit photos, and that story relied seemingly solely on an interview with uh, the apparently teenager's parents. However, since the story broke, the person who reportedly provided those photos, who's now 20, has said through a lawyer that the son's story is rubbish and that nothing untoward happened. And British police have also confirmed that they have not opened a criminal investigation. So are you
1: saying, or are they saying, that the original story looks narrow, a bit shakier from the that's
0: sun? That's what it looks like. The Guardian published a story from its media editor Jim Waterson today which said sources at The Sun are now trying to distance the paper from its original and most explosive allegation, and that's that the person the presenter paid for explicit images was under 18 years old. That's a crime in Britain. Uh, the age of consent 16, but you can't... Uh, do you can't have photos of someone mm. under the age of 18, uh, explicit photos? Uh, Watterson has also written a story uh, for the paper's website with five key questions for the Sun, including whether it tried to contact the young person at the centre of its story before going to print. It seems like maybe it didn't. He also wants to know whether it has any hard evidence that the presenter broke the law. So those are all good questions to ask. They haven't been answered yet, though. Well, following on from a Philip. Schofield drama,
1: it's uh, interesting, isn't it? How is the the BBC responding?
0: Yeah, it was criticised by the Sun for not taking action when apparently this uh, young person's parents complained to it seven or so weeks ago. Uh, it has now pres- it's suspended the presenter in question, and it's added its own reporting to the scandal. It interviewed a, an, another man, a 23-year-old man who was also contacted by this presenter on a dating app. And according to its report, the 23-year-old received a series of what it's what he said were abusive and threatening messages after hinting that he might name the presenter. Now, the BBC's report says. It has seen those messages, but it hasn't detailed their content, and that didn't impress the former Guardian editor Alan Bridger who described the the situation uh, like this: uh, famous person uses dating app, links up with an adult, nothing comes of it, they never meet. The adult threatens to write about it online. Famous person is very angry. Lead item on BBC News, and he went on to say uh, that he uh, he agreed with the person who said the BBC often overcompensates against allegations of bias by going harder on its own people in an attempt Mm. to be seen as impartial. So what you'd describe as an
1: extremely messy situation for them.
0: Yeah, and one presumably with a bit more reporting to come. Who knows what The Sun has up its sleeve? Mm. Maybe we should watch this space. Either way, it's a relatively high-stakes situation for two large media organisations in the UK. In the case of The Sun, it, it risks a defamation lawsuit if it's accused someone of a criminal act. Without uh, any actual evidence for that, and it's actually untrue, the BBC also has obviously a lot of reputational damage at stake here. The the presenter is named, and its response to the allegations is not found to have been up to scratch. Mm. Well, we uh, await with a great deal of interest on that
1: one. What a year it's been in the UK for... uh... Television presenters. I've got to say, uh, very sad news the death of Steve Osborne, um, a widely respected and very well liked, much loved video journalist.
0: Yeah, uh, really sad news. I worked with Steve at the Herald about Mm. 10, 12 years ago. He's a really lovely guy. Mm. Really well liked in the industry, just had a lot of time for people,
1: <laughs> mm. a really
0: unique personality as well. Did you work with him? I've worked with him over the years, uh, a number of times actually. Uh, the Young
1: Farmer Contest, uh, we used to do that uh, for about 16 years and he was uh, regular yeah. on that, um, doing various reports. So, yeah, lovely, lovely guy, and very easy to work with and uh, such a stellar yeah. operator. He's worked he, with, to create wonderful about shots. everyone, eh? He has. Yeah, he has, and he had yeah. a beautiful portfolio, we're yeah. looking at it today. Fantastic. That's very sad indeed. So uh, thoughts and uh, best wishes go to Steve's family uh, on his death. Thanks, Hayden. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And Media Watch, of course, returns on Sunday. Colin at the helm?
0: Yes, Colin mm.
1: at the helm this time round. But you'll only get one version of it. He's not going to play it through twice. He's, he? He's going to, to be
0: very meticulous <laughs> about checking that.
1: Good on you, man.